Hello and welcome to the Elevate Music podcast. I'm Lucy Heyman and in this episode I'll be speaking to former artist and owner of Carousel Music, Chris Sheehan, about the various transitions he's faced in his musical career. We'll also hear from founder of SGO Publishing, Stuart Ongley, who gives us some great advice for artists starting out. But first, let's hear from Chris. I started as an artist when I was about 17. I moved to London when I was about 22, 23 to start really following that properly. And then from there did four records, only really one of which came out actually for various reasons. And then just fell into a studio world, uh, running a studio at the Chocolate Factory, which I still just about got. A bit of production, co-writing, and then from there ended up in promoting, setting up a publishing company, doing some artist management, little bits of label stuff, and then, of course, working for Help Musicians UK, who I'm very passionate about. So research has suggested that transition points in a musician's career are incredibly stressful, and in particular that transition between going from an amateur musician to becoming a professional. Can you tell me a little bit about how that was for you and whether you found it difficult at all? I think there's a big difference between a musician and an artist. The lines are really clear for musicians, for session players and for orchestral players, because you go from, I guess, studying to starting to get paid for jobs. You might get paid, you know, quite a small amount to begin with, but there's that moment where you begin to get paid for things. And I think for artists, you could be actually at quite a high level for quite a long time before you make any money whatsoever. I think I felt that I was certainly getting to a a level I wanted to be at, but I still wasn't making any money from it. So the stresses for me were just that continual erosion of your self-worth because of, of not earning enough when all your friends were sort of starting to earn quite good money in their late 20s, early 30s. And so did you have a job on the side at that point? No, I just went for it. I sort of promised myself that I would just completely commit to that. I think it's something that I would advise artists against today. You know, I did the New Deal, I signed on, I got housing benefit, got myself out of that by a little record deal which didn't last very long and then just working in the studio really I just kind of taught myself to be a a sound engineer by watching the guys who were helping me make my own records and just watching asking as many questions as I could in the sessions and and just getting really into that community of engineers up at Chocolate Factory and Wood Green. So going back to that time in your 20s when you were gigging a lot as an artist and, and really going for it What were the key skills do you think you needed in that period? The overarching one was people skills. I think the ability to help people fall in love with what you're doing so that they will do things for for free or for much less than they normally charge people who were signed to big labels and stuff. So, you know, I had a, a lovely guy called Drew Lorimer who did all my artwork, who was the director of EMI at the time doing the Beatles Love Album. And he just fell in love with the record and, and did it for nothing. And I had guys playing on stuff who would normally be playing with Sheryl Crow or Noel Gallagher or Divine Comedy, what have you. Really, really great musician friends who just wanted to see it happen for me. For I, I think probably more because of people skills and trying to be a decent human being than anything else, really. I think today the list of skills you need is an awful lot longer, isn't it? Because the world has changed from... I was just before downloads and, or just as downloads were happening and before streaming really came in. So social media hadn't quite happened yet. How do you think that works if, for example, an artist is like really shy and not very good with people? Do you, what, what do you think happens in that situation? It is tricky, I think, at the moment because we are expecting artists to be 
all things until they get to a certain point. We're expecting them to be good at that. So I do worry that there's a lot of really great people out there that just aren't getting out of their bedrooms. I mean, in some ways, I guess they can, maybe they shine through because they have that ability now to just make music in private and get it up there. But I think to really get a network and get a team around you, you do need to be out there. There was a really good research paper done looking at the process of, of transitioning throughout a musician's life across all genres, actually. It wasn't it wasn't just classical, surprisingly, because there isn't so much research in pop on this. And they were saying that those multi-genre peer networks, having a really good collection of musicians across lots of different genres is really, really helpful when you're going through, you know, when your career is changing and you're getting more profile and things or, or if you're going through difficult times. So you found that quite helpful, did you? When I was in York, it was fantastic. When I moved to London, I felt incredibly uh, isolated and just didn't know anybody, which is one of the driving forces for why I set Carousel up years later. I wanted to sort of avoid other artists being in that situation, to be honest. But I was very lucky that I fell into this amazing family of songwriters that Chris Difford from Squeeze had been nurturing. He was running these songwriting retreats where he'd invite 15, 20 different ages, different genres, but all great writers and stick them in a, a country house or on a farm in Italy or, or wherever it might be and you'd spend a week together just falling in love with these amazing people and, and realising that we're all going through exactly the same thing, trying to achieve the same thing and there's just no age between musicians. That was the thing that was the most beautiful thing about those weeks. I've got friends in their 60s, 70s, 80s now and, and friends who were just getting into their mid-twenties and early thirties from those weeks. So that for me was completely life-changing. Can you tell me about the process of becoming you know, a producer and songwriter for other people? There's various ways it, it happens. I mean, obviously, if you have a team around you, that if you have a manager or a, a publisher that you can be asking to start reach out for you, then that, that helps. But in my case, it was more accidental, really. People needed cheap studio time. They didn't want to pay for a producer. They just wanted an engineer. And in many cases, they didn't really want an engineer. They just wanted to pay for the studio and I'd end up doing it for free. And then you just end up with some nice relationships. And especially when you're writing together, people then want to get it recorded. So you go in and do it and it just sort of blossoms from there, really. I think everything that happened to me was by accident. It was just like a one thing followed another. But there's very definite paths you can follow today where you can reach out through managers, publishers, labels, distributors. I mean, especially in the independent industry, there's a lot of, fantastic organisations like AIM, the MMF, places that you can go to their events like the BBC Introducing Days and just get yourself around. And There's so many more platforms to show what you can do with a recording as well to, to get people in, I think. And so if someone was listening and they are an artist at the moment and they're kind of interested in actually becoming a, a producer or a songwriter for other people, what would you recommend that they do? Well, start with, with the people you know already. Start with the people close to you and just reach out to them and see if they're up for doing a, a couple of tracks together because you need to build up a, a bit of a portfolio a bit of a audio cv that you can then use when you do start reaching out to people that you actually really really want to work with and you think can take your career forward do it for the love of it more than anything write with people that you really think something great could happen and write for people that you think are going to push you out your comfort zone as well in the beginning you're going to have to do stuff for nothing sadly you're going to have to just do some recordings because you want to have a great end result. And from that, hopefully you'll have a CV that you can then start getting out there and reaching out to some management companies and publishers and stuff. 
And so when you were doing a lot more engineering and producing work, did you find that there were any specific like health and well-being issues that you were facing that were different to when you were sort of purely performing or, you know, yeah, can you tell me about that? I think this is a really important point, actually, because I think it is massively overlooked. There's so much support for every other area of the industry really sort of gaining traction now. The guys that work in the studios are the guys who've been completely forgotten, I think. I mean, you'll be working generally till, you know, you might be paid until 6 p.m., 7 p.m. You'll generally be working till 1 or 2. You'll get home at 1 or 2, 3 o'clock. Your mind is racing. You've been editing the same 15 seconds of a track for about eight hours that day. So all that happens in your mind when you get into bed is that same piece of music goes round and round and round. So you get some sleep, but you don't really get any sleep. You probably ate a takeaway on your way home or when you got home, so you're full of bad food that your body's trying to process so you don't get any proper quality of sleep. And you'll be doing that every single day for maybe two months, three months to get through a record. There's the pressure that you've got your rent, that you've got to meet. Nobody can afford to pay full rate for studio time anymore. You might have credit cards with all the equipment on which you're having to make the minimum payments and it's constantly on your mind that you've got 10 grand on that card and three grand on that card. And then you're just about making things work and Pro Tools dies and suddenly you're looking at 6,000 pounds to get a new HD card or you're looking at two and a half, three grand for a new Mac or something. Or it could be the really, the really small things that shouldn't be a big disaster like upgrading your operating system. Always wait at least a year before you do it, or a year and a half, because it, nothing ever works when you upgrade. And if you've got sessions booked in, and that session is what's going to pay your rent for the next two months, and suddenly your Mac is completely down, none of your plugins work, the software won't load up, and you've got all the bands sat in the room staring at you, and you know that it's going to be at least two, three days of restoring stuff, uninstalling, f somehow getting hold of the original files for the plugins that aren't online anymore because they don't want you to use old versions. And So mental health-wise, I think the hours are killer. Diet is really, really tricky. The stress of people not paying on time because everyone's scratching around for money. You'll do the job, you'll do a brilliant job. Then they'll want five or six new versions of the mixes, which will take you an extra two or three days that aren't budgeted for. Of course, you want them to have the best possible result at the end, so you end up just working until they're happy with it, but you know, you're not getting paid anymore. So these are the guys, really, that are fueling the music business. They're the ones who are discovering the new talent before the managers find it, before the labels find it. They're the guys putting all their love and, and experience into it. Most of them are former artists or existing session musicians as well. So I think it's a really important area that, that's not really been properly looked into actually. There's a piece that a producer called Grace Banks wrote about how a lot of studio environments are subliminally male dominated where there's just little things that are left around that people might not even notice like it might be posters of a naked woman on the wall in the studio that people think is funny or it might be just little things that you know people like Grace are doing amazing work in, in getting everyone aware of that stuff because I think most people would be horrified if they thought they were making people feel like that but until people look into it and start talking about it they don't know. In a research project that I did recently about where musicians went for support a lot of them said that they found it really helpful talking to their producers because um, producers had been there they understood the music industry in a way that their friends and family didn't and and this was a real 
a real picture that was emerging. Did you ever find that? Did you ever find that people kind of lent on you or sort of asked for your advice more generally, you know, not specifically about a track, just more about the industry as a whole? A thousand percent. I did the same thing with a absolutely lovely human being called Dave Anderson, who produced my first album. And Dave had been a musician, then he'd produced the Sundays and uh, worked with Fine Young Cannibals and used to work with Robin Miller. So Dave was like a, a total mentor to me, both on a, a human level, on a musical level. And, and then absolutely when I was going into doing more of that, it would make up, I would say, about 30% of the day just chatting about their lives. It's just a natural process for an artist to be comfortable singing and, and performing or playing whatever they're playing. They need to be in their most relaxed sort of place where they feel safe. And I think musicians are really brave and good at sharing what they're going through because that's what they're about to sing about anyway, a lot of the time. We're very open people. We like talking to each other about what we're going through. And once you've had like a couple of hours over a coffee or a lunch just talking about your relationship or or what's going on with your label or, or whatever it is, you know, and all of a sudden you just then disappear into eight hours of recording and everyone is just totally at peace. There's nothing worse than recording with a stranger. This would be something that comes up a lot, I would think, that so many musicians, even on the first day they meet for a co-write, will have sh totally overshared stuff that they would never tell anyone else by lunchtime. And then there's a song in the afternoon. It's amazing. I really, really miss that, actually. That sort of immediate bond with strangers. Have you ever had, I know you mentioned your producer previously, but have you ever had any kind of formal mentor? I've never sat down with someone who's offered to mentor me, but I've had immeasurable mentorship all the way through my career, really. I've been unbelievably lucky. Particularly, I think as an artist, it was Dave, the producer, Mike Rowe, who's, a, I think, one of the best musicians in the world. He, he really mentored me as a writer and a player and a performer, really pushed me hard, but was always a very, very loving sort of member of the family. When it got to, you know, the songwriting side, Chris Difford, but then when I went over to the business side, Stuart Ongley, who I think you're going to chat to, was a absolutely phenomenal, still is a, a phenomenal influence on teaching me about publishing, what's important, why it's important for a writer's career all the way through to their pension. So Stuart and, and Roger Kent, who helped in the early days with Carousel, and there's, there's so many that and I'm now getting anxious that I've forgotten someone really important. But if someone was listening and they thought, yeah, I'd, you know, I'd really love to find a mentor, do you have any advice on how they could do that? People love feeling like they've helped people, especially when they can see someone's going somewhere. They love to have a little part of that. So it's bringing them in and giving them some ownership of your success because, because they genuinely are part of it without absolutely hammering them all the time for... There's, there's a difference between asking things so you can go and do it yourself and asking them to do lots of things for you. I think that's the main thing is to ask for advice and then show them that you've gone and acted on it and that it's worked for you because it's a really good feeling for them too. And I guess the best bit of advice I'd give to anyone in the industry is just remember that everyone on the end of an email is a human being. So when you're asking for something and you don't hear back from them, it doesn't mean they think, oh, this person's music's rubbish or I don't care about them. It's probably that they've got 280 emails in their inbox of people that are absolutely furious with them. Sometimes just giving someone a really nice reminder, giving them a, a total get out whenever you ask for something, I think is good advice, I'd say. And can you tell me a bit about Carousel? 
That kind of happened again by accident. I was at a point where I was about three or four months behind on my rent up at the chocolate factory. So I went to Manoj, the director of Collage Arts, who run the building. And I just went to give him the keys back. I'd, I just had nothing left. And he said, well, look, we're not in the business of kicking out people who've been here a long time and we want to support you, but what can you do for us to try and work off the back rent? So we agreed we'd do a, a little gig down in the restaurant underneath the studio sort of twice a month. It was one of those things, no one was going to come to Wood Green for a gig, especially back then. I just rang everyone I could think of. So Chris Difford came down and Mark Nevin from Fairground Attraction and Mike Lindup from Level 42. And we, we got some old legends to come down and then got a really nice sort of group of emerging artists to play. And that kind of really turned into this sort of collective where everyone wanted to be part of it. That kind of snowballed and then Stuart came down to one of the showcases we were running in Soho because we started branching out to Soho and Islington and Camden and stuff. And just, you know, said you're giving such a service to these artists, why don't you set up a, a little publishing thing to get a bit more involved with them. So yeah, so today we do industry networking events. We're just about to do our 500th showcase opportunity for artists where they keep 100% of the money, they get a really great industry crowd down. Uh, so next year will be our 500th showcase slot. And then we're still doing the publishing, little bits of management and the industry's finest music quiz, I might add. So you've obviously worked with some amazing musicians throughout your career. And as you mentioned, all, all different ages. And obviously, you know, there's like transition points when people might decide to leave the industry or whether they decide to retire. Is there anything that you've noticed about sort of transition, those transition periods in a musician's life? It's a hard one, this, because you never want to tell someone to give up. It's a sure way of making sure they don't. I see a lot of artists who are in their early 30s that you just kind of know it's going to be really difficult at that point for them when they're still only at album one or EP one or what have you, where they've been refining and refining and everything's moved on, but they're still really married to what they were trying to do five years ago. And I think sometimes what you really want to say is this is going to be such a sacrifice for you. You're going to miss that chance to go and earn a proper living. You have to really know that you really, really want it. I mean, the flip side to that is there are those people that carry on in the face of that and suddenly go and have a wild success. Someone like Jamie Lawson, who I knew from years back, we were doing stuff at the same time. And maybe three or four years after I gave up, he suddenly had a number one album, number one single and, you know, prove the exception to the rule. But for artists, I think there's a moment in your 30s where you have to really know that this is what you want for your life and you have to be prepared to not have a lot of those things that you thought you were going to have when you were young. And that's not to say it's the wrong choice. If you're happy with that, it's the best choice in the world because it is still the greatest life in the world. But it's a massive, massive sacrifice. Do you have any advice if a young musician is listening and you know, their professional career is about to take off? Have you got any advice for them? Well, on a boring level, I would say get the business side of it really well organised so that when you do get a manager, they can come on and actually do the job properly. And it's not going to put them off that they have to wade through an absolute mess of finances and stuff. Get a business account, put all of your music income into your business account and start to do that properly so that things like your tax are easier to sort out. It's really boring advice, but 
there's so many managers I know that they take a look at it and they think, oh my God, I'm gonna to have to sort all that out and I'm not gonna get paid for the first two years. And So I'd make it as easy as possible for people to get on board and having knowing where all your distribution is and where all your rights are, having copies of all your contracts, having all of your, you know, your money in one place is a really good thing. I would say make sure you've got everything registered on PRS if you're a writer. Make sure you're registered as a performer with PPL, but crucially, make sure if you're self-releasing that you have yourself registered as a rights holder with PPL. Because if you've not registered as a rights holder, that's almost half of the income for your label, but it's also a block for getting any of your music used on blanket license, which is BBC, ITV, Channel 4, Sky. You can't get synced on any of those channels if you don't have both the song registered with PPL as a rights holder and PRS as a songwriter. So that would be my golden tip for today. Any other advice? I'd say don't try and chase what's current. Get your sound, get the thing that you do and absolutely stick to it because the lens keeps moving and it moves back to wherever it is that you're at. It might take a while, but I know so many bands who could have been absolutely brilliant if they'd just done what they do, but they kept trying to chase what was big at the time. By the time you've got it mixed and mastered and it's released and there's the whole, you know, three months in advance for press and all of a sudden everyone's bored of that band and they're onto their new band and you're like, oh, we need to change our sound again. That's something I know loads of bands have done. So just find the thing that you're absolutely in love with and stick to it. And any advice for the industry networking side of things? Don't be afraid to ask for help. People love helping. And like I say, you know, keep it gentle and polite. I would say compliment people as well. If you love what they're doing, go and tell them. You'd be amazed how that starts a conversation. And and talking to people in other bands, they're not your enemy, they're not your rival, they're your brothers in arms, you know. It's musicians are so generous at introducing to the industry people that have helped them or telling you about the ones to avoid. So I just keep talking to people. It's something that we seem to be losing the knack of in, in life at the minute is talking to strangers. That would be my, my main tip is to keep talking to people doing the same thing as you. This episode of the Elevate Music podcast is supported by Help Musicians, an independent charity that has been supporting musicians for nearly 100 years. Through an integrated programme of health and welfare and creative funding opportunities, the charity offers a lifetime of support when it's needed most. For more information on Help Musicians or to find out how to access support, visit helpmusicians.org.uk. Now let's hear from Stuart Ongley. After a period in America, I came over to the UK and worked as a musician for some years. I think I just gave it too much and I sort of burnt out. And I went to the other side. I decided to manage the guitarist in my band. And then I got a very lucky break. A lawyer that had been introduced to me worked with me for a couple of years. And he said to me one day, there's someone I'd like you to meet. And the someone was Peter Gormley, the manager of Cliff Richard. And so I went from really nowhere to having the opportunity to meet one of the the great managers of that time, Olivia Newton-John, The Shadows, Cliff Richard and, and more. Suddenly I found myself working in this small office of Cliff Richard's management at a time when he was a huge pop star. And 
It was unbelievable. It was my lucky break. It remains my lucky break. And it stood me in good stead up until the present day. So you've obviously worked with a number of musicians who have been going through their own transitions, either new artists who might be blowing up and becoming huge, or maybe big artists who, you know, their career might be kind of winding down a bit. Have you noticed anything about those periods and and how musicians handle them? It can be very, very testing. You know, the music business is a weird enough type of vocation anyway, at at the best of times. But this sudden success or the the loss of success, the falling apart of success and the gradual decline, it's just very, very testing. And I've seen it really cause great destruction in individuals and families and so on. And it's very hard for anyone who hasn't been there to understand that and understand what that person is going through. On the downward side, it's very, very hard if you develop a standard of living and you have a circle of friends, acquaintances based on that standard of living for the the money to run out. When the success fades, that's no longer there. So these are very difficult times for people in, in, a, in a pretty unusual business and not many people understand it. So the support sort of thing that being looked at now by various organisations, I think is really important in our business. And it's great to see it coming into play. What kind of support have you heard about or, or, or seen that can help musicians during this period? Well, I'm just aware that charities like Help Musicians UK, but also organisations like PRS are really looking more closely at the well-being of their membership and of the of the industry i think this is a great development people just outside the music business just don't have any understanding of what it's truly like to be that artist in the front line they're totally exposed you know their art their talent their look everything you know they're just totally up there and exposed to it and at the extreme level that can be very disturbing unless you have a strong support base around you it can get the better of you at times working for Cliff Ritchie was really interesting for me because I walked into what was like a fortress built around that artist a family when success came we all enjoyed that success it was expected in a way and everything was geared up around processing that success correctly. Uh, Cliff had been in this management company since he was 17 or 18. That was my first experience of success in the music business, so that's what I thought how it went. Subsequently, I saw that's not how it goes, you know, that it can be the cruelest thing. Success can just become a very ugly thing. Not all the time, of course, but it is an extreme So Chris spoke about how he thought that musicians really need good people skills. What do you think for those artists that are living that kind of quite extreme life that you were just describing? What do you think some of the key skills are that those kind of artists need? It's trying to keep it real and trying to have an orbit of people around you who are, you get the sense they're there for you through thick and thin the good times, the bad times, 
and they're people that you re relate to and they relate to you. Forget the music business. It's a personal thing. You know, are these people your friends? Do you have a relationship as people? You know, I, I think that's critical. And I think if you can have that orbit of people around you, whether that be family, friends, etc., then I think you can withstand anything. But if you don't have a solid orbit around you, you become very vulnerable. You know, I don't care who you are. We're all human. We're all essentially the same makeup. And I think when at extreme times, you need others. You need the support of others. You need to be able to turn to others. And, and I think that, you know, as an artist, if you can create that orbit or be part of it, as I say, through family uh, as well, then you can withstand it and deal with it. But it is testing. Mm. And talking of that orbit, I know Chris said that you had acted as a mentor for him throughout his career. Um, do you see any mentorship happening for musicians? Yes. Well, funnily enough, I've just been taken on as a, a mentor by a conference that has started this program of mentoring five or six artists each year. And it's a very highly developed program, very impressive. The sort of creator of that or the, the conference approached me and asked who I knew, this person, and she knew me. She asked me if I would mentor this young musician. And I'm sort of at a stage, having been in the business so long, and also really feeling for this new generation of musicians coming into the business as it is today. It's extremely difficult these days, much more so than it was. I was only too happy to join that program. And then I met the artist in October, we got on like a house on fire because there's no business agenda. You know, this is an artist needing input. Uh, the artist was told that of my great experience in the, in the music business. And so we may have been able to just sit down and talk it through, plan it through. And it's been very, very rewarding for me. And it's been great for the artist. And this artist has really come alive since we've started this dialogue. And it's been wonderful to see that. And we're on a year plan. We're going to work it through. And I think there should be more of this. I think people like me who've been in the business for some years to be asked to help, we really warm to that. And then we've got so much to offer having you know been through that journey that I think it's a really interesting thing. And it's great to see it taking place. The conference is called English Folk Expo. It's only been going, I don't know, six or seven years, but it's been really well developed. These people behind it have really done their homework. They've developed an increasingly successful conference that took place in, in Manchester this year and the previous year. And now they've added this mentor program to it once again, really thought through, really well planned out. So obviously, as a publisher, you must work with a lot of producers and engineers as well. Um, Chris spoke briefly about some of the specific issues that producers face, you know, the, the long hours and the sedentary lifestyle and the financial insecurity. Is this something you've seen? I have. I think the business has got very tough generally. And I think right across the business, particularly in the area, of course, that's very true about, you know, the, the making of records. There isn't the income there used to be in the recording. So people are cutting corners, paying low rates, looking to 
do favours, all this sort of thing, which in, in terms of the producer or engineer, they're often being asked to work for little or nothing. The lack of money immediately brings a pressure on these people, along with, as you say, the long hours and just the line of work it is. So it's interesting Chris raises that. That would be an area of vulnerability because of the lack of finance in that area these days. I think that where possible, the producers and engineers and anyone in the mix, to be honest, should be paid a fair rate so as not to bring that financial pressure on them. In terms of them as individuals, like anyone in this business without sort of rules, especially on the creative side, the making of recordings, you know, the performing as an artist, you've got to look after yourself. You know, you've got to look after yourself physically and mentally because of this lack of structure. It's not nine to five. It's not this, you're employed by by another party, you're on on a regular salary. It's none of that sort of thing. So you really have to look after yourself and develop processes where you are looking after yourself first and, and still do your work, but take care not to go in too deep. And finally, what advice would you give to a musician starting out in terms of coping with the ups and downs that they're probably going to face throughout their career? If you take the decision to make music, you've taken the decision to be an artist. I don't mean a performing artist necessarily, but you've taken the decision to make art. And art If you've taken that decision, you should say to yourself, whatever the outcome, whatever the recognition, this is what I want to do. This is what I'm doing. When I paint that picture, I've painted that picture. No one can take it away from me. When I've written that song, I've written that song. If my mum likes it and no one else does, I don't care. What's got to be relevant is this is what I've chosen to do. I'm going to do it. And, and just pursue it like that year in, year out, with a structure, with a system in terms of turning it into a business. But don't let anything get in your way because if you want to do it, it's valid. Stuart, thank you very much. It's been lovely speaking to you. My pleasure. If you need help with any of the issues that have been raised in today's episode by Chris and Stuart, you'll find links and signposts to all the appropriate services in the podcast description. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And you can get in touch with us on social media at Elevate Music Pod on Twitter and Instagram. This podcast was produced by Elevate Music and Listen in partnership with Help Musicians. Thanks for listening and see you next time.